Hello and welcome to episode three of A Friendly Chat. This is Luke Maunder, a senior associate at Bristow's, and I'm here with my colleague Naomi Hazenberg, also a senior associate at Bristow's. Hi Luke, and in episode three we're going to be talking about the roles of patent pools and other negotiating groups. So we wanted to start with the one case where that had been looked at in the UK and and that was uh, in Sisfel and Mitsubishi against Xiaomi, where the role of the pool administrator had been looked at. And in that case, Mr. Justice Mellor considered an application to remove Sisfel as a claimant in the case because Xiaomi argued that it had no standing because the patent it had owned that was owned by the pool had been found to be valid, but not essential or infringed. Slightly unusual situation there with the patent pool actually owning one of the patents. But uh, yes, when the patent was knocked out, then you had a sort of more sensible scenario where it was just a patent pool as a party with no actual skin in the game, as it were. So Mr. Justice Meller reached a conclusion that it was helpful having the patent pool as a party, not least for disclosure reasons. And obviously a pool license was the license that was partly an issue. And he considered that a scope of a friend license is not constrained by the scope of the underlying legal right, having considered, I think it was three German decisions, Naomi, is that right? I think that's right. And all of those supported the position that the real world licenses that were agreed um, in this kind of situation were those to the pools of patents uh, with the pool administrator. And that was because they were efficient and there were, you know, economies of cost involved in, in agreeing that type of license. And he also said when Xiaomi had argued that because of the fate of the patent owned by Sisvel, that the license should just be a bilateral license to the Mitsubishi portfolio rather than the broader pool portfolio. And although he didn't go either way on that, he did say that that would require some proper justification by the defendant. Yes, yes, indeed. And so the application to remove Sisfel was not allowed. Sisfel continued as a party to the case. I think it's fair to say he did leave the, the sort of question open. Obviously, he could see a lot of utility in having Sisfel as a party. One of the issues in that case was whether or not the essentiality rate could be presumed to be quite high, given the Sisfel gateway process that was conducted on all the patents and things like that. So disclosure against Sisfel was no doubt important. Having Sisfel's involvement was useful. But he did make a comment that the legal standing of Sisfel as a party was obviously a matter that needed to be considered by the trial judge. So Sisfel stayed in the case. Obviously, that matter then settled. So we never got a satisfactory conclusion on that, did we? All these things that settle without us knowing the secret answers. It's so frustrating. <laughs> Indeed. It leaves lots of room for argument, though, for the future. Albeit, I think we can be fairly safe that the court's going to be happy to have a patent pool as a party in proceedings if there's a, a solid justification for it. Yeah, I think that's right. And especially, you know, we haven't had an action that we've talked about before of a, a successful action of a an implementer seeking a license. But in the Vestel case, mm. uh, Access Advance were a defendant in that case. And, and the court, you know, there was no comment in that case about the pool administrator being a defendant. And obviously, the claimant who sued them were happy to have them in the case. So, you know, another indication that that might be a, a possibility. Yes, yes. As you say, it didn't really come up as an issue, but the court certainly didn't raise it as a, as a problem. And um, given the issues involved, it was a competition law case. Um, and the competition law allegations also related to the behaviour of the pool, I suppose there was a sort of more of a justification for having them around. Yeah, I guess if that case had progressed 
you know, beyond the jurisdiction challenge, you would have got some, would have had some interesting comments potentially on the on the role of the pool and the pool license. Uh, but yes. as, as it was, it fell at the jurisdiction hurdle. <laughs> uh, indeed, indeed, uh, yes, not 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 too bad. No. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I suppose that does follow through though in what happened in Germany because the advance license was held to be franned in some litigation in Germany. But then when Vestel, I think it was, challenged certain aspects of the license, an injunction was refused on the basis of sort of concerns to do with certain aspects of that license to do with the royalty stacking provisions, because obviously there was provision for repayment, quite rightly, where there was duplication with the MPLGLA license, but the court had some concerns over how that mechanism operated. So, But that was a sort of denial of an injunction rather than anything to do with sort of it's just quite a unique situation, that one, isn't it? Because you're not going to regularly have pools where you have two pools licensing like the very similar technology with with a lot of overlap. So, you know, a rare a rare situation possibly that that the German court looked at. And I think you know, in the in the states, the the Avanci license has been said to be, you know, okay. So you, you get both. You know, people have looked at the license terms and said. Oh, there are some problems, but also people have looked at pool license terms and said, "Yeah, that's that's all good. Crack on." Yeah, yeah, indeed. And um, the European Commission has similarly been quite made some positive noises about patent pools. You can see how they're useful. Um, they they definitely ease the market burden of getting lots of separate licenses. They drive down transaction costs. You've got the aspect that the technologies that they're not generally speaking, <laughs> at least in terms of what they're doing, licensing SEPs. They're not competitors. So you you might have competitors in a pool together, but they're not doing something through that pool in which they're competing. Yeah, absolutely. It's a sort of complementary technology argument. And they have been supported by various competition authorities as being a positive step. So, But that, that's an interesting contrast there, isn't there? Because there's been some discussion about licensing negotiation groups recently. Yeah, absolutely. I was going to say the same thing. It's a, a good segue into the discussion about licensing negotiation groups. And, and maybe, you know, we said before, another acronym alert, we might slip into saying LNGs. You know, these have been talked about in the context of the German automotive industry and, and other options. And there are some distinctions to be drawn with how they might work and, and how they work in contrast to a pool where the licensors gather together. Yes, I think that's right. And every time I hear that acronym, I can't help but think of liquefied natural gas, which is probably not the most helpful. You're not helping our geek status here, Luke. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, so yeah, I, th- I think there's an interesting question, isn't there? Because there's a lot of um, negative press about LNGs, lots of negative thoughts about them. But then you do have certain organisations, including some European organisations, supporting the idea of a form of LNG as a potential solution, not not pushing it, not saying it's a great idea, not saying they don't have problems, but, but sort of suggesting they could be a potential solution and you you can obviously see the problem with an LNG per se as a sort of basic theory right it's a quasi cartel of people with the same interest getting together and and talking about fixing a price for a negotiation and using their joint bargaining power in an industry where some would say some wouldn't say some would say that implementers have more bargaining power than set holders now where you come out on that spectrum, I think, is is an interesting question, and it's not really worth getting into because I think there's arguments as to who's got the most power every which way, if we're being honest. But this idea of LNGs is is interesting because, of course, they don't have to operate in a way where you get all the implementers in a room and they exchange loads of highly confidential yeah. information, do they? I think I think that 
it like hits the nail on the head, doesn't it, really, in terms of the debate about LNGs. It's how they are approached, whether they are essentially a single negotiation point for a much larger license or whether they are, let's all sit in a room and agree that we're not going to take a license for more than X amount. And once you get to that point, you you can see that's a quite a lot harder to justify. And, you know, you've got some collective holdout arguments that you could that you can see might have some traction. But, you know, depending on how they are going to be run, they do have the same benefits as a pool, the economies of scale, the um, negotiating power of a, you know, smaller entities or even bigger entities joining together and having the collective market power. Um, As long as you aren't agreeing those, you know, the base rates uh, before you go in and, and, and you've got an open negotiation that is, you know, friend friendly. Yeah, it should be okay, but it, it's hard to see that it's an easy, <laughs> an easy question to answer. Yes, yeah, I I, I agree, and it's it, it does get interesting because you can have some quite interesting discussions about price fixing because obviously anti-competitive effect by object price fixing being one of the you know that is something to be avoided at all costs. Yeah. So you get a bunch of implementers together and they decide I'm going to pay only five cents on the dollar, and we're so powerful that's effectively going to set the price. And then you have a pattern pool, which is a group of people who aren't competitors in what they're doing, but they're still getting together and setting a price for all of their patents to be licensed. But of course, the, argue, the argument there is the FRAND commitment on all the individual members effectively constrains, is a contractual constraint that means they can't act in an anti-competitive manner. And you don't have that in the same way on the implementers. But then you can solve it another way. So the RPX deal, I mean, there have been a few RPX deals. They're interesting because you've got an aggregator with members who've gone to them. Can you do us an economies of scale deal effectively? So they've not talked to each other. The members haven't talked to each other and shared anything confidential. They haven't set a price. They've just said, hypothetically, if you've got the sales of three or four of us, could you agree a good rate? And we can all take the benefit of that and economies of scale. And they've gone off and then they have actually got a good rate and supposedly and and must be a good rate because everyone signed up to it rather than taking individual licenses, I am assuming. And there's a sort of interesting question about which side of the line was that on? And it seems more legitimate, doesn't it? It just seems an economies of scale argument. Yeah, I think that's right, isn't it? And I think it's it will come down to questions of transparency and where um, whether it's possible to see the process within the LNG, to see the, I guess, the process of each individual company. Because, you know, like you say, what is the comeback? There is no comeback on the LNG themselves. You'd have to sue the individual implementers if if you didn't get a, a license at the end of some negotiations. And whether those individual companies would be able to hide behind the veil of the mystery of what happened within the LNG and, and frustrate the FRAND aspects of a case is one that I know people are concerned about. So it's a, like you say, the transparency issue. It is. And I, so at a recent conference I went to, some of the entities had an interesting idea sort of taking that to the extreme, which is that you could have a tribunal and everyone could be invited, sort of like the world's best house party. Don't do us out of a job. Like. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I suspect this isn't going to happen. But I suppose the, uh, uh, the argument is it's the ultimate LNG because everyone who needs a license or, or 98% of everyone who needs a license is effectively appointing one person to negotiate on behalf of the world. Yeah. And actually, if all the SEP holders 
had licenses to every mobile phone sold and we're earning a reasonable royalty on it i'm not sure they'd be desperately upset no, you can't you can't see that taking a maybe marginally lower rate to have licensed every implementer that there is and and billions and billions of shipments of devices i can't you can't see that people would really really complain, complain. for that long no indeed and and if a new implementer popped up presumably it'd be a fair no brainer to just take that license too indeed so uh maybe that's where we're ultimately heading naomi but as you say we don't want to do ourselves out of a job <laughs> out of a job as a lawyer and as a podcaster <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure we'd find something else interesting to talk about which probably brings us to the end of that podcast and join us next time on episode four when we'll be talking about friend methodologies and in the meantime if you've got any spare time on your hands check out the bristow's friend tracker and the social pages for any upcoming events yes and there will be upcoming events certainly at least on the potential interdigital lenovo and optus apple judgments as soon as we know when they are thanks for listening mm-hmm.